This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Yes, it's just a rebranded Red Box. If you previously enjoyed Red Box, it's exactly the same. It's just called Politics Without the Boring Bits now because that's what my Times Radio show is all about. Coming up on today's episode, did Nicola Sturgeon kill independence after an extraordinary 12 months of the SNP? Humza Yousaf, the SNP First Minister, is out and about. Anna Sawa, the Scottish Labour leaders out and about, both making pitches for each other's supporters. And obviously Scotland is absolutely crucial to what happens in the general election. That's coming up in our big thing. We'll also have a sneak peek of this week's episode of How to Win an Election. And don't forget, if you want to listen to Politics Without the Boring Bits live, join me on Times Radio for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits weekdays from 10. Good news for lawbreakers. Good morning, Mr Johnson. Uh, Mark Drakeford has offered up a new defence. The Welsh First Minister was being asked yesterday about enforcement of his 20 mile per hour limit. I think if the police find somebody driving above 20 miles an hour, and the reason is, is because, you know, they are genuinely confused about that, then that's why the police will always start with education uh, and conversation. And I don't think in those circumstances of genuine confusion, the police will move to enforcement. Great news, great news. So if you are caught by the police, speeding, not wearing a seatbelt, breaking lockdown rules or accidentally prosecuting sub-postmasters for mistakes made in your IT system, you now have a ready-made excuse. You were just a victim of... Genuine confusion. Easy peasy, easy peasy. And now, a short advertisement break. Milk! Ugh! I'm here in Accrington in the northwest to see levelling up in action. Accrington Stanley! Who are they? Exactly. Nah, get off! Give me some! Get off! One for the kids there. Yeah, the Prime Minister has had his milk, which makes a change from his usual tipple. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm a cook oh, addict. Oh, a total cook addict. Right, now, as we always do on a Tuesday, we bring you a little taster of this week's episode of How to Win an Election. Stronger podcasts, fairer podcasts, podcasts for everyone. Strike up the band! <laughs>
Let's soon up be soon up is different from let's soon up be Cummings. Try and start the year being a little bit. <laughs> no, no, it's all the band, will you, Danny? <laughs> they absolutely should not water yeah, this down yeah. to the point of of homeopathic disappearance. Here we are again then, it's uh, How to Win an Election with me, Matt Chorley, joined as ever by our political masterminds, new Labour mastermind, Peter Mandelson, Polly McKenzie's Policy McKenzie, formerly Nick Clegg's Brain, uh, Director of Policy uh, for the Lib Dems, and Tory Brainbox, Daniel Finkston, how are we all? Fine, uh, we just had a bit of a debate about whether Matt's jacket is dapper or not, which is even more amusing for people listening, because they can't, they can have to imagine You better watch it, you can watch it back on YouTube. Dapper. Peter was a bit more sceptical about it than Polly was. <laughs> it's quite soft, I think there's a lack of interfacing. Is there? You mean yeah. it's not got strong shoulders? No. But maybe it's the problem, I've not got strong shoulders. <laughs> Maybe. Can you think of anyone else who's not got strong shoulders, Peter? Come on, you've got better shoulders <laughs> than Ed Miliband. <laughs> <laughs> Peter's wearing a sort of black polo neck. Sort of I know. Milk train, man. Rather raffish. Raffish, I think raffish is a good word. Um, uh, well, let us know what you think about what we're all wearing. You can email howtowin at thetimes.co.uk uh, if you are watching on YouTube. Now, we've had some, uh, we've had some emails. Last week, Polly, we're, we were talking about uh, uh, your, your elections to watch. Uh, you chose Taiwan. Well, we've had an email about what you said. Uh, says, hi, I'm Xu Yang. I speak Chinese. And I just want to say that Polly's pronunciation of... KMT Kuomintang. On the previous episode was absolutely accurate. Phew. Glad that one of the three chose the Taiwanese elections because it matters. And under the current circumstances, it's romantic to Happy New Year. So there we are. Well done. Uh, if you want to get in touch, how to win an election uh, at thetimes.co.uk. Uh, now, we're going to talk about smaller parties, but particularly the Lib Dems, because Ed Davies all splashed all over the papers, which is normally what the Lib Dems would like, but possibly not for the reason that he would. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But since we last met, uh, Rishi Sunak has said his working assumption is the election will be in the second half of the year. Ben emailed in from Portishead, uh, the place, not the group, he says. Uh, Sunak has just co- talked about the general election being in the second half of the year. People are taking this at face value and saying it'll then be in the autumn. I think he could be doing this to wrongfoot Labour so they'll be caught off guards when he calls a snap election in the spring. What do you think, Peter? I think that's a pretty astute observation uh, because he hasn't ruled out an autumn election. Working assumption is the sort of vaguest uh, formulation he could get away with. Obviously, the speculation about the election was sort of getting under his skin as so much else is seemingly doing these days with the prime minister um but i think you know if he saw for example you know the sort of green shoots of economic recovery and by some sort of miraculous sort of renaissance the economy suddenly started looking up he might make a dash for it or if he saw in the labor party some policy weakness or division or whatever um, he might want to take advantage of that. I mean, I can't think in the Labour Party what policy area might come before their absolute determination to win the election, but it's possible. Um, of course, having, if he does delay it to the uh, autumn, then he's giving the Labour Party plenty of time to iron out any policy weaknesses and friction. So, in a sense, he might be doing the Labour Party a favour. It's basically what you suggested last week, isn't it, Danny? He had to sort of hose it down without categorically ruling it out. Yeah, I think, I think he has pretty much. I mean, I think if we've learnt 
something about Rishi Sunak in the last year, it is that his political calculation is not his greatest uh, game. Uh, so I, I just think um, maybe you might, as Prime Minister, have, uh, you know, tried to lure the Labour Party onto the rocks. I just think he said, told us when he's thinking of holding the general election. And if you aren't going to hold the general election in, in May and you aren't going to hold it in January 2025, it's better probably to say it. So my view is we now know roughly speaking, when the election is, there's a small chance, of course, in all things that it won't be then. But by and large, we know when it is, and so we can stop discussing that and concentrate <laughs> on what actually are the issues. Yeah, yeah. By the way, if the strat- you know, the reason why I don't think this is the right thing to do, to wait yeah. till October, November, is because if you try to put a list together of the things that might change between now and then, you're hard put to it to discover what they are. Uh, and so therefore, I think a feeling that uh, an election has been delayed will simply build uh, a case, you know, will build a momentum against the Conservatives. So I wouldn't have done this, but if I was going to do it, if I was going to hold it in the autumn, he clearly wants to do that. I sort of thought he probably would, and if you... Was, does want to do that, then it's right to say so, so that at least he doesn't get the, you know, everyone thinks he's going to go in May, and then he says at the last minute he's not going to. And actually, uh, I was struck at the weekend, uh, Keir Starmer saying that uh, all he's doing is he wants to clock up two years in Downing Street, it's putting vanity before country. That sort of mood could start to... The one thing it has done is ruled out your theory, Polly, that we're going to end up having an election in 2025. Well, uh, yeah, he said it's not going to happen. There are no guarantees in politics. (laughs) He's definitely in a stronger position now because if he... If he had allowed that uh, speculation to continue, then going for the autumn would look weak. Now, on the off chance he does go for May, it looks strong to do so. Uh, like Danny, I think that his best bet for the Conservative Party would be to go early, to go in the spring. I, I still don't think he will. Mm. And and what if bad things come along in October and November and there's bad news? He still could string it out just to get that extra year onto his... Well, I suppose that's a calculation. You could be waiting for something to turn up, but the, yeah. the, 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 the risk think, is that something might turn well, up. Well, I'll tell you yeah. what I think the risk of turning up is, is Donald Trump in the autumn. If, as is almost certain to be the case, he's the Republican uh, candidate... Uh, the, he is going to run a mother and father of campaigns and that's going to coincide with and overlap with Rishi Sunak's uh, election campaign. And I think that's a sort of uh, association he doesn't want to mm. invite. Uh, they will be running, after all, similar campaigns. I mean, small state, lower taxes, tough on immigration, uh, etc. And I think that what... Uh, Danny, you're wincing. Uh, I that's, think a, that's even more stretched than your jumper neck. I, I can't... <laughs> I don't think so. But why do you say that? That they're going to be running similar campaigns. Indeed, indeed, I think actually well, I would I'd, say that the, the okay. So I'd put it to you: the uh, the, the the difficulty for Sunak will be exactly the opposite. It's quite considerable this difficulty. I agree with that. Um, but the difficulty is simply that um, there'll be a populist campaign to Sunak's right by the Faragists, maybe even by Nigel Farage. Mm-hmm. It will gain a lot of energy from Donald Trump's uh, campaign. There'll be pressure on. Sunak to run Donald Trump's election campaign, but he neither has the inclination to do that, nor the capacity for it, because he's a very different person. But what's the alternative, Danny? I mean, he has already decided to open the new year by being not the change candidate, but the continuity candidate. Britain's on the right track, don't risk it with... Well, in fact, let's just remind ourselves of that, because Danny's previously talked about the three types of elections, time for change, on the right track or better the devil you know. So here he was being changey-changey at the party conference in October. But the worst thing about Sakir is that he just says 
whatever he thinks will benefit him the most. Doesn't matter whether he can deliver it. Doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if he said the opposite just a few weeks or months ago. He is the walking definition of the 30-year political status quo I am here to end. So there we was, changey, changey. And then this was him yesterday. Now, the choice facing our country of that election is do we stick with the plan that is starting to deliver the long-term change that our country needs, or do we go back to square one? So this is a major switch in strategy. <laughs> um, I hadn't realised it had been quite as stark uh, as it is. But he, he is becoming the continuity candidate. Um, uh, and he is spearheading this campaign, Danny, I'm afraid, on, on, on two issues. One is lower taxation, which he can only advocate uh, by embracing a smaller state the state doing less and spending uh, less in order to give lower taxes instead. And the other is immigration, which is still a drum that he keeps on beating, I think, in a rather futile way. But nonetheless, there's colossal pressure okay. uh, in his both within his party so, and outside his party in the reform, okay, you know, to, 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 to pursue these issues. Now, you say, well, that's got nothing to do with Donald Trump. It just so happens that those are Donald Trump's well, they, they issues. Aren't, but that's, uh, they're not. The second of those is, um, but the first of them, lower, a smaller state, is not really, and uh, lower taxation isn't really Donald Trump's uh, theme. Uh, he is running a, a populist campaign, which is about the whole nature of the establishment. Uh, it is indeed the campaign that Rishi Sunak, I did think, did dally with, but yeah. could never have pulled off yeah. because he's not Donald Trump. So I, I think that uh, the idea that well, those two will be the he, same he's is basically not, doing that. Donald Trump is doing both these things. Of course, he wants to offer lower taxes and a smaller state while saving everyone from uh, uh, oblivion. I mean, he's a sort of Johnsonian uh, character. He's both, you know, a, a nationalist and somebody who wants to bail everyone uh, out of their troubles uh, by spewing out populist slogans uh, the entire but, time. But, but, he, I, but I, the, the point I'm making is that, you know, in the, in the, in the media, in the public's mind, there will be th these two campaigned running in parallel and there will be a lot of pressure on Sunak uh, both within his party and from the Faragists in the Reform Party uh, uh, to go you know to change course and strike a more populist right-wing uh, set of notes uh, 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 Trump will be doing the same in the United States all these things uh, are at risk of merging in the public's mm. mind and for a candidate like Sunak who has to broaden his base and reach out to the centre of politics he's, if he's going to stand any chance I think that is uh, I think it's not brand enhancing for him Polly what do you make of all this? I, I, well I think Peter's also done an about turn Oh. Well, because you said that he was going to run a campaign like Trump, and now you're saying that he's going to come under pressure to run a campaign like Trump. So I, I've slightly lost. Well, the two things are not opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he will come under he will come under pressure because a lot of people in his own party don't want continuity conservatism because they don't think it's real conservatism. No, I think that they I want th a yeah. real conservative campaign headed by a real conservative leader, okay. you know, with real conservative uh, uh, policies, and we all know where that. Uh, and uh, and it's I think it's the reason why Sunak has pivoted so much from one set of campaign messages to something completely different is because he, he isn't holding his party together. He is coming under pressure. He doesn't really know who he is or what he is mm. that, he, that um, he wants to do. And what, at what point does that 
because clearly what he's done is he's tried one thing and he thought, well, that's not worked. You know, he, he tried just quietly, quiet delivery his five pledges a year ago, gave that six months, that didn't work. It was a wobble over the summer, he became the change candidate uh, in the autumn, that didn't work. Then he brought back David Cameron, so he can't be the change candidate if he's uh, attacking David Cameron. David Cameron. But at what point does all that sort of flip-flopping, I mean, what well, they accuse Keir Starmer of, does that become a problem in and of itself? It's not just that he keeps changing, it's that people can seize all over the place. Well, it's interesting as well that the sort of the half-life of these individual slogans is reducing, yeah. right? Like six months, three months, uh, we've got exponential uh, reductions in the in the length of his campaign slogans. So I, there will come a point when people will notice that he has not said the same thing uh, m- more than two days in a row, and and I, I, that really that it's that the way that desperation harms strategy. Um, is is becoming more and more um, apparent. They they are casting around because because they're they're frightened. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it was a la- lamentable to to put forward that, in my view, absurd time for a change strategy. Uh, I understood why they did it because there's a public mood that it's time for a change and because continuity will be so difficult to make work. But it was obviously not going to be able to land it. I I, I think. Um, you know, therefore, the, the criticism that's being levelled against them is completely merited. However, uh, it's also important to remember that literally nobody knows that he made that speech, except for a few political aficionados, that he made a speech about change. Uh, it'll have damaged his reputation among people who are commenting like us about, about his political strategy. But, but really, the crucial thing is, does he land with enough time on broadly the correct strategy? And I think he has. So I'm I'm pleased about that. I, I, I think, as we've discussed before, the biggest problem he's got, and Polly's put it so well, that's a brilliant phrase about de- what the, the impact of desperation on political strategy. The, the problem for the Conservative Party is none of these strategies, time for a change, better the devil you know, or continuity, um, Britain's on the right track. None of them quite work. But of the three of them, this is definitely the best one. Yeah, and so sure it's good that he's moved that. up. I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I think it's harder than you imagine to run a continuity, you know, Britain's doing well, Britain's heading in the right direction, isn't Britain looking up, so let's just continue. That fights completely with reality, the national mood, and what voters think. I think there's a variation of change which he could have adopted. Uh, and it is the 1986 Thatcher model of the next steps forward. He's got to say, what yeah. is the point of voting for a fifth but term? But that was Britain's con- on the right track. I you mean, know, they actually used I, that slogan. Yeah, I, I know, I know, Danny. <laughs> but, but they also had a programme which they launched in their 1986 conference a year ahead of the election where she set out all the next things that a Conservative yes. government and, was going to do. We haven't seen Hyde nor No, no, I agree that with that. So I'm not saying, I'm not just saying, you've got to show, when you say Britain's on the right track, you've got to show what the track is, obviously. <laughs> Brett, you do. I mean, that, Well, I think people know what, what the track is. What they want no, no, to know no, is, no. where is this track leading yeah, that's, to? Well, that's, what, what, I mean, what, that's what I mean by track. What is a re-elected fifth-term <laughs> Conservative do, government do, going to do to take, you know, what are the building blocks? What yeah, do they do next? That's why they say stop in your tracks when you're not going anywhere. But I'm talking about going down a track yeah. um, and we're getting lost in our metaphors here the point about to get Britain's, on the right, Britain's on the right track don't turn back is that it's a strategy that says we've got a direction uh, if you want to keep on doing these things we know where we're going we know what the next steps are and right. that's that's and, the and only that strategy. is what is absolutely no, no, yeah. no, 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 no sign now, of that they've now endorsed the fact that they're going to try <laughs> 
to advance that, and that's that's a, I, that's a good thing. But it's really hard for them to do it when the Conservative Party has had five prime ministers, yeah. five different sets of tracks of that they have been on, <laughs> of course. Um, most of whom going in conflicting areas, each directions. Each different prime minister has slagged off the previous prime minister, and so th- I think that's why we had Danny Kruger, a backbench MP, talking this week. Uh, no, uh, leaked comments uh, saying that unfortunately uh, the country is in a worse off situation than it was 13 years ago when the Conservatives took power. And and as, as Peter says, if that is people's kind of lived experience, their reality on the ground, then saying it's starting to work... Like that's fine for Margaret Thatcher in her going into her second term, right? It's starting it wasn't, it wasn't to work. Which sec- is what, it wasn't her second term. It was, her, it was going. It was going into her third. The third election in eighty six. Eighty six. I thought you said eighty. Anyway, whatever. <laughs> I was. I'm too young. Too young. It's hard truth. Um, <laughs> Are you starting to become a bit ageist? Is this was creeping in here? Look. Yes, also, absolutely. we shouldn't forget what no. the real Conservative campaign is going to be about, and that is Labour, 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 Labour. And he will be day in, day out trying to work out how he can get into the single in a single sentence. Uh, right up until polling day, the words Labour, higher taxes, additional borrowing. Yeah. That is what the, the so, Conservative campaign yeah. is heading towards. So, so the great, an interesting question, Matt, is will he abandon the second part of the strategy, which is the bit where he says the problem with Starmer is he's all over the shop and you don't know what he stands for, in favour of he's very dangerous. So yeah. that's that's yeah, the that's other bit. Because yeah. um, he can't both be very dangerous and not believe in anything. Correct. That's well, a um, cho- choice as well. Up next, we're not going to do Labour, 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 Labour. We're going to do Lib Dem, Lib Dem, Lib Dem, Lib Dem. Ed Davey is all over the papers. Uh, he's acute, well, facing calls to resign. Uh, I mean, it's always, you know, the big problem the small party uh, often has is trying to get attention, but it's the sort of attention they need. And what role will they play in the next election? We'll do that next on how to win an election. And if you want to listen to the full episode of How to Win an Election, just search for How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. Up next, did Nicholas Sturgeon kill independence? This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. The Big Thing. 
Yeah, we're coming up to a year since Nicola Sturgeon quit as leader of the SNP and, of course, First Minister. She said at the time it was the best path forward for Scottish independence. But I am firmly of the view that there is no majority support for independence in Scotland. But that support needs to be solidified and it needs to grow further if our independent Scotland is to have the best possible foundation. To achieve that, we must reach across the divide in Scottish politics. And my judgment now is that a new leader will be better able to do this. But coming up to one year on, has that plan been scotched? Humza Yousaf, her successor, thinks not. He kicked off the SNP's general election campaign with a speech in Glasgow, pitching to voters that independence would be a boost to Scotland's economy. The UK is the poor man of Northwest Europe. Those trends were already taking hold before Brexit. Leaving the European Union means a further long-term hit to the economy. All the while, Tories and Labour offer nothing new. But for Scotland, there is a choice. We can accept our place as part of this low productivity, high inequality economic model, or we can decide to chart a better course. So terms of Yousaf uh, there, is he appealed to uh, people across the spectrum to back the SNP. Then, just down the road in Rutherglen, Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa made a speech aimed at pro-independence voters. He called on them to defect from the SNP to, quote, boot the Tories out, saying, we may ultimately disagree on the final destination for Scotland, but on this part of the journey, let's unite to change our country. Meanwhile, this morning, the Scottish Conservatives leader, Douglas Ross, told the BBC that his general election strategy will be to convince voters to focus on the economy, not independence. His independent speech promised economic miracles that he can't deliver. You know, he can't get ferries to sail a, a vital lifeline for our communities, but he thinks he can walk on water. His independence paper is a threat to the Scottish economy, and we know that it's only the Scottish Conservatives that can stop the SNP in many of these seats right across Scotland, and that's what we'll be doing. We're up for this fight against the SNP at the general election, and it's absolutely vital that we stop their divisive plans for another independence referendum and get the focus onto the real priorities of people across Scotland. So that's the Conservative uh, leader in Scotland, Douglas Ross. But with Labour now currently ahead of the SNP in the polls, is Scottish independence dead? Or at least for the time being. We thought it was time to convene our armchair generals. CCHQ, Chorley Campaign Headquarters. Uh, yes, yeah, a Scottish edition of CCHQ. Uh, with our, our experts in what is going on in Scottish politics. Kieran Andrews, the Times' Scottish political editor. Hi, Kieran. Good morning, Matt. And Katrina Stewart is at the Herald. Hi, Katrina. Good morning. Um, so, let's start with Humza Youssef then, uh, Kieran. It, clearly, 2023 was a bad year for the SNP. They lost uh, Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, shortly after that, uh, she was questioned by police. Uh, over there as part of their investigation into the SNP's party finances. She's been released uh, without charge and denies any wrongdoing. Uh, others, uh, her husband was arrested as well, uh, former chief executive uh, of the SNP. Um, uh, is there any hope for the SNP that this year might be better than last? Well, 2023 was certainly the year that Hamza Youssef had to deal for the vast majority of it 
with problems that were not of his own making. As you point out, there was a lot of hangover from Nicola Sturgeon's time in office that just overshadowed pretty much everything that Hamza Youssef did as First Minister. What we're starting to see now is Hamza Youssef creating some of those problems for himself, or at least certainly charting a course that um, he will have to, you know, he'll have no one else to blame for. We've seen the, the Scottish budget, which was published just before Christmas, which will um, put in place a new tax band and increase the tax differential um, between people working in Scotland and people working in England and Wales. So if, if there's any blowback from that on Hamza Youssef, that is not something you can pin back on Nicola Sturgeon. Um, it, you know, we're now into a, a phase of Scottish politics where uh, Hamza Youssef is having to take responsibility for his own actions um, with the SNP and Labour pretty much neck and neck in the polls and um, a lot of SNP MPs pretty worried about their seats in the upcoming general election. Uh, uh, Katrina, that sounds a bit like he took a bad, uh, he was dealt a bad set of cards and he's made it worse. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he hasn't had his troubles to seek, certainly. And I I think the majority of Scottish voters just want to know what life is going to look like in the immediate term post the general election. They want to know in practical terms what is going to be happening to make their lives better because everybody is fatigued and uh, disillusioned with politics. You have Labour making big noises about how they're going to transform politics, make it a sort of lighter uh, experience on people's lives. People aren't going to have to engage with identity politics and aren't going to have to sort of have these very uh, stressful interactions with um, with uh, political squabbling. But Hamza Youssef has also talked about how uh, he's going to bring positivity into politics. But I think people just want policies. They want to know what's happening. And it's a very kind of easy attack line to to look at the speech yesterday and say, well, you know, this is all fine and well, but it's pie in the sky for the moment because there isn't a route towards independence. Yes, there is support for independence that has remained relatively static. But ultimately, it doesn't matter to the majority of voters unless you're very passionate about Scottish independence. You want to know what's going to be happening with your lives uh, in the immediate term. In fact, so one of one of the uh, key claims he made was that every Scottish household would be £10,000 better off. Uh, the Resolution Foundation said that if the United Kingdom had the average income and inequality of similar countries, then the typical household would be £8,300 better off. And if we use that very same analysis for countries that are similar to Scotland, the prize for the typical Scottish household would be even greater. They would be £10,200 better off. That, then, is the huge prize of independence. I mean, I suppose the main question is, uh, Kieran, does that... Does that stack up? I mean, Katrina makes the point, it's a bit pie in the sky because there's no prospect of that coming. But do those numbers even add up? Well, we asked the Resolution Foundation yesterday about the Scottish Government's um, adding up of their figures, extrapolation of their figures, and they refused to comment but made it clear that they um, have done no modelling on Scottish independence, which suggests they were less than happy about the Scottish Government taking their figures for... um, uh, you know, a, a different set of analysis and just applying it to an independent Scotland and leaving it hanging there as uh, as the potential prize. And but but we have seen this. It's the 
you know, the, the battle over independence was always about the battle for, um, you know, how much, I was going to say how many pounds would be in people's pockets, but of course that again depends on the currency um, perspectives for an independent Scotland. But you saw in the run-up to the 2014 referendum, the Better Together campaign pushed hard, saying that um, people would be a couple of thousand pounds better off in the union. Um, the Yes campaign said the same, uh, almost exactly the same figures, I think, about um, uh, people being better off under independence. And in the last few years, that uh, number, the kind of figure that's been put on it by SNP leaders as to how much better you'd be off under independence has grown from about £2,000 to now £10,500, which is um, even under recent inflation uh, figures is quite something. Uh, yeah, and so I suppose, again, it just goes back to that question of if you're going to make those claims and there's no prospect of independence coming, then... Uh, it all feels a bit far off. Uh, let's turn our attention then to Labour's Anasawa, because uh, he made his speech uh, in Rutherglen yesterday, uh, where Rutherglen obviously being where they won the uh, the by election. He he was making a direct appeal, Katrina, to independence voters to sort of lend their votes to him in order to quote boot the Tories out. Is, it in, is that is that a sort of a new being so blatant about your pitch to voters? Is that is that a new move by Labour? He's certainly very explicit about it. I mean, I think in this race, everyone is trying to ride two horses at once. You've got both leaders who are really trying to reach out across the divide on independence. So Hamza Youssef was saying yesterday that, yes, absolutely, not everyone's going to agree with the cause of independence, but their, sh- their views should be respected. Whereas Anna Sarwar is essentially saying that, you know, the immediate term solution, that is the, the limited prospect of the second referendum and the current Conservative government, um, are enough to warrant independent supporters voting Labour for now. But of course, if Scottish Labour is appealing to independence voters to help them on the path to success, then he needs to be ready to answer the obvious question, which is, what do independence voters get in return? And uh, and I think that's going to be a kind of crucial point for him to answer if he's going to, to labour on scooping up undecided independence supporters. It's, inter- it's an interesting approach that um, uh, Kieran, because you know Douglas Ross seemed to be trying to move away from talking about independence at all to talk about other things. Is there a risk here for Labour that by using the I word a lot, you are just pl- you, you're letting the SNP set the agenda? Well, I don't think an Sauer is using the I word all that much. What he is doing is trying to hoover up, as Katrina said, disaffected SNP voters. You know the, the gap. Um, that there is in in the polls between people who um, still support independence but who don't support the SNP anymore. And, uh, you know, effectively, there's a cohort in Scotland of voters who are somewhere in the middle um, who who probably do support independence, don't think it's a priority at the moment. And those are the people that Anas Sarwar is trying to hoover up by saying, you know, the general election is about getting uh getting a new government across the uk getting rid of the the conservatives and so lend your vote to labor and what he'll be hoping for there notwithstanding the uh the potential issues down the line you look forward to horrid elections that katrina uh rightly identified what what he'll be hoping for is that once people have lent their vote to labor once it becomes a lot easier to do it in the future we saw that the SNP did brilliantly to build on that from 2007 through 2011 in successive Holyrood elections. 
where they, they got Labour voters to come over, just give us a just give us a chance, see what it's like. And once you've broken that habit of voting for a specific party, it becomes a lot easier to do in the future. Well, let's let's try and um, uh, get under the bonnet of the numbers on this. Then let's uh, let's bring in uh, John Curtis, Professor John Curtis, a polling guru from the University of Strathclyde. Um, John, the uh, when Nicola Sturgeon resigned uh, last year, a poll came out saying that more than half. In fact, fifty nine percent said uh, that uh, more than half of over half of Scots thought Nicola Sturgeon's resignation had damaged the case for independence. Fifty four percent it was uh, at the time. John, is uh, do you think that's that's panned out over the last twelve months? No, Nicola Sturgeon's resignation has not had any uh, in- obvious impact on the level of support for independence, as Katrina has already mentioned. But it did do an awful lot of damage to the SNP. I mean, it was interesting as you presented that clip at the beginning of this discussion. Uh, the truth is that the thing that went most badly wrong for the SNP last year was Nicola Sturgeon's uh, decision to resign. At the moment that she resigned, the SNP was still running at 43% on average in polls for Westminster voting intentions, only marginally down on the 45% they got in 2019. By the time that Humza Yusuf had been elected leader and before any of the arrests associated with the allegations about the SNP's finances, about which, of course, we've heard nothing more for a very long time, uh, support for the SNP was down at 38%. So most of the decline in SNP support occurred in the immediate wake of Nicola Sturgeon's decision to resign and Humza Yusuf being elected as her successor. Um, It does mean, of course, that the problem that the SNP faces now can't simply be blamed on the misfortune of the SNP's finances, although it did do some further damage further down the track, Um, or indeed that the fact that people are not interested in independence and don't support it, that's not true. The problem the SNP face is with themselves as a political organisation. Um, and to that extent, at least, therefore, the question facing the SNP is not how do they advance the cause for independence in the minds of voters, although that is a long-term task that faces them. But that's what Mr Yusuf was talking about yesterday. Rather, it's about persuading people that the SNP are indeed standard bearers for the cause of independence in whom they should be continuing to invest their trust. And it's the willingness of some yes voters, at least, to can maintain that trust that is now in some doubt. It was striking, I was looking back, and it, there aren't that many polls in Scotland, the same as we see right across sure. the UK. But, I mean, in in November, 15% of people who voted yes in 2014 said they were going to vote Labour. Uh, I think that was up about three points on the year before. So it, it didn't feel like, there was, that, at least up to that point in November, and clearly we're a couple of months on from that now, is there any sign that that, that is actually working? Or what, is it that the Labour Party are taking the votes from... I don't know, the Lib Dems, the Tories, other parts of the electorate, rather than reaching directly to the SNP? There are two parts to the story of the Labour revival in Scotland. Part one is nothing to do in particular with politics in Scotland and everything to do with the two dramatic events, i.e. Boris Johnson and Partygate and Liz Truss and the uh, fiscal event that transformed uh, Labour's chances across the UK as a whole. So um, before the party gate, Labour was still running up third in the opinion polls in Scotland. 
In the wake of the List Trust fiscal event, they were almost at 30%, up from the 19% of 2019. And that was primarily achieved by winning over voters, yes, and the Conservatives, uh, and becoming the, what for what once again, displacing the Conservatives as the principal uh, political party being backed by pro-union voters. There is then a second uh, element, which essentially you know, is in the wake of the Nicola Sturgeon's resignation and then continuing through the summer, whereby the Labour Party have picked up a minority, but a crucial minority, probably around one in six of those people who currently support independence are currently saying they are voting Labour. Um, I think you know the, the explanations are primarily to do with, one, the fact that Mr Yusuf is not anything like as popular as his predecessor, He's not regarded as doing anything like as good a job as his predecessor. And perhaps also crucially, whereas hitherto it has looked as though the SNP Scottish government was largely immune from losing electoral support because people were unhappy with its record in office. So if I go back, for example, to the spring of um, uh, 2022 and I look at people's valuations of how well they thought the health service was doing, and their probability that they would vote for the SNP again, what they thought about the health service in Scotland didn't seem to make any difference. <laughs> Replicate that analysis for, for 2023, and you discover that indeed those people who voted SNP in 2019, but who are unhappy about the state of the health service, are now less likely to vote for the SNP. So that, so it, in, to that extent, at least for some supporters of independence, independence is no longer a sufficiently defining issue that, that persuades them to vote for the SNP. And indeed, yes, it's the Labour Party who are best able to profit from discontent with the record of the Scottish Government and Mr Yusuf being regarded as a less charismatic and a less capable politician than either of his two predecessors as First Minister. Just finally, John, before we actually speak to uh, the Minister for Independence uh, in the SNP Government, Based on what you, you've seen, is Labour on course to replace the SNP as the biggest party in uh, in Scotland, going back to the situation we saw what, a couple of decades ago? The, the answer, the, uh, well, certainly Labour are not on course to be back to winning 40 seats in Scotland. I think at the moment it's a 50-50 toss-up as to whether or not if there were an election tomorrow, Labour would get uh, more seats than the SNP. The two parties are quite close to each other. And there are an awful lot of seats in Scotland that are marginal when the two parties are close to each other, and it therefore would depend very much on the outcome of individual seats. Um, the obvious hope for the SNP is that in the end, they can persuade some of the people who support independence to swing back to them. That certainly is their potential ballast. For Labour, the hope is that indeed they still look as though they're capable of displacing the Tories, and that in the end, their argument that voting Labour is the best way of getting rid of the Conservatives has some influence, although, of course, in practice, it's probably not true because we know that the SNP would not help to sustain a minority Conservative administration. Now let's speak to Jamie Hepburn. He's the Minister for Independence in the Scottish Government. Johnson. Now, Hi, Jamie. Hi, good morning. Uh, what's your reading of it? John Curtis says there's a toss-up uh, between whether or not Labour or the SNP will have the most MPs at the next election. Well, there's no denying, of course, the opinion polls have narrowed, but people write off the SNP at their peril. If you look at the opinion polls over the last year, virtually all of them, the SNP still remains ahead in the polls. And after 16 years in government, I think that's quite some feat. Now, we enter this election on the basis of seeking another mandate from the people of Scotland to continue to advance the independence case. And that's some of what the 
First Minister was laying out yesterday. Whose fault is it that you're neck and neck with, with Labour in that way? Well, look, we're heading into UK general election. The context is always a bit of a challenging one for the SNP in so far as that's one where people might be looking to think who will form the next UK government. But of course, as the people of Scotland look at the supposed alternative in the shape and the form of a Keir Starmer-led Labour Party that's flip-flopping all over the place. It's changed its position on the, the two-child cap on child benefit. It's it, saying that it'll stick largely to Tory spending plans. Keir Starmer's said that the Labour Party are the real Conservatives and, above all, in its position on a, a Brexit that the people of Scotland didn't vote for and now supports the position of the UK remaining outside the EU. I think people will start to look at that and say that's no real alternative at all and recognise the SNP represents the real alternative and independence for Scotland represents the real alternative future for our country. Would you rather see Keir Starmer or, or uh, Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister after the next election? Well, I think we're all realistic enough to recognise the First Minister made this point yesterday, barring something extraordinary happening between now and the election, Keir Starmer is going to be the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So again, the question for the people of Scotland is, well, what do we want to see as a, an outcome election? Do we want to vote for lobby fodder for the Labour Party or do we want to vote for uh, a group of MPs that will stand up for Scotland and keep the Labour Party honest? It's the SNP that represent that choice of course and uh, in contrast to the Labour Party flip-flopping all over the place, you can vote for a party that will stand up for Scotland and make sure that Scotland's voice is heard at Westminster. Uh, the thing is, Keir Starmer can't become Prime Minister unless he wins a lot of seats in Scotland, unless people who previously voted for the SNP uh, vote Labour to, as in the words of, uh, of Anasawa, yes, they boot the Tories out. And actually, if people in Scotland want a voice in the Westminster government, uh, you know, sitting around the Cabinet table, they, want, they need Scottish Labour MPs, don't they? I mean, this is one of the great mythologies of British politics that the Labour Party can't form a UK government without people in Scotland voting for the Labour Party. I think it's only in one instance in the last 60 years that the Labour Party has relied on MPs from Scotland to form a UK government. If they can't win in England, then they're not going to form the next UK government. And all the signs are that that's what they're going to do. So we have an opportunity, we have a chance here in Scotland to make sure that we vote for a group of MPs that will stand up for Scotland, will stick up for Scotland rather than just go down there and uh, doing what they're told and sitting in the back benches and uh, being lobby fodder for uh, a Labour government that frankly isn't uh, proposing any agenda for change. It's basically looking to uh, offer the continuum uh, and the continuation of the agenda we've seen from the Conservatives over the last decade and more. Um, what do you make of uh, the prospect of independence? John Curtis there saying that the uh, the big impact that happened last year, Nicola Sturgeon's resignation uh, triggered the uh, the shift in support for the SNP. There's no way of you getting independence without the SNP in government in Holyrood, without you having an awful lot of MPs uh, in the House of Commons. The prospect of independence in the near political future is dead, isn't it? No, I disagree with that. If you look at the uh, opinion polls that are still... Uh, substantial support yeah, for independents running around 50-50 uh, uh, in the polls. Well, frankly, we get it by persuading the people of Scotland for the case. There's only so long, I believe, that any UK government can stand out and hold out uh, against the popular opinion of the people of Scotland. And if people of Scotland continue to vote 
for uh, those who advocate independence, then they should enable that question to be put to the people of Scotland uh, again. And if they don't, if they don't, sorry, sorry, because I'm just quite sorry, because of time, Jamie. If they don't continue to vote for the advocates of Scottish independence, if the SNP go backwards in the popular vote and the number of MPs at the general election, you can't keep making the case then for independence, can you? That's a rejection by the voters of of the exactly the argument you're making. Well, look, sorry, I'm not going to sit here now several months out from an election and concede that election. We're in it to win it, and I'm confident we can do that. We've laid out already, we debated at our party conference just last year what our position will be if we win a majority of seats at the coming general election. That gives us the mandate to put into effect the the question we'll put to the people of Scotland that a vote for the SNP is a vote for Scotland to become an independent country. That'll be line one. Page one of our manifesto, the people of Scotland vote for that. We win a majority of seats and that voice should be heard. And if you don't win a majority, that's it? No, look, we, we are entering this election. I'm confident we can do well. I'm confident that we can win. And I'm not going to concede the election at this stage. If we uh, win that election, then the voice of the people of Scotland should be listened to and we should be able to advance the case and move towards independence. Just finally, Jamie, while, while I've got you, uh, last week I spoke, to, we heard uh, an interview I'd done with Marie Black, uh, who you'll know, Deputy Leader for the SNP in Westminster. She told me uh, she thought some of her colleagues in Westminster actually quite enjoyed being there. Let's just take a listen. I've seen folk who you would have thought would have been the first one marching to the border with a claymore, but now absolutely love being in London. <laughs> you know, you think, I, I wouldn't have expected that. You know, so, so it so is. Some, a, of your, some of your SNP colleagues actually quite like being part of the Westminster bubble. I will not specify if they are current or not, but yes, there's. I've come across ones where I've thought, hmm, you're, you know, slightly, or you appear slightly more comfortable than I think you should be. <laughs> And then uh, another one of your colleagues, Joanna Cherry, yesterday said that uh, Marie Black should quit or apologise, saying she'd hampered the chances of many colleagues who are facing difficulties to hang on to their seats. Uh, do you, is Marie Black right? Do some of your colleagues get a bit too cosy there, or should she apologise? Well, I'm not looking for colleagues to march to the border holding at claymores, as she put it. What I'm looking for them to do is to be elected there to advance the cause of independence and be there for as short a time as possible. And when I speak to my colleagues who are at Westminster, I know that's exactly what they seek to do. They're down there to make the case for independence and then come home to help build a better society here in Scotland through having the powers of independence. Do you agree with uh, Joanna Cherry that she should uh, quit or apologise? Mary Black's uh, doing a, a good job as deputy leader and I know she'll continue to do so. Great stuff. Uh, Jamie, good to speak to you. Jamie Hepburn there, Minister for uh, Independence in the SNP uh, government in Holyrood. And uh, no, no, we'll keep across uh, everything that's happening in Scottish politics in what is going to be an extraordinary year right across the UK. Do get in touch if you've got any comments or complaints about the podcast. You can email me, matt at times.radio or post a review on the Apple Podcasts, particularly if it's about my face. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.